Today, RTI's newest host, Emma Banak, and I check out the popular Lithuanian chocolate store, which has become Taiwan's sweet way of saying thank you to Lithuania. We also share another special thank you as we hit yet another milestone in overcoming our COVID outbreak. Stash talks to political scientist Wen Ti Song about KMT's newly elected chair, Eric Chu, and how he may lead the party. Finally, what did CNN anchor Fareed Zakaria call Taiwan? Find out in today's Hashtag Taiwan. This is Taiwan Insider. Zero local COVID cases. This is becoming a trend. In fact, in the past three weeks, we've seen zero to three daily cases. We have contained our biggest outbreak yet. Now we can dine out without partitions. And we in Taiwan, I think, deserve a pat on the back. We also need to say thank you to Slovakia for sending us 160,000 vaccines and to Lithuania for promising nearly 240,000 more. Now, Lithuania has been an amazing friend to Taiwan. And just this week, I went out with Arte's newest host, Emma Banak, to check out the Lithuanian chocolate store in Taipei that's become very popular. We're in this cool part of Taipei with lots of cafes and boutiques in the area. It's right near the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall. And we're going to check out a Lithuanian chocolate store. Yeah, so Lithuania has donated so many vaccines to Taiwan during our vaccine supply shortage. And Taiwanese people have really stepped up to show how grateful they are by buying lots of chocolates at this little shop. Let's check it out. Here we are. This is the store. Yeah, this chocolate room looks so bright and cheery inside. I'm so excited to try out what they have. Let's take a look. They have tiramisu. Oh, I love tiramisu. Dried plums, cranberries, strawberries, blueberries. Even coffee some beans. coffee. Some you coffee. like coffee, right? Yes. This I was wondering so what exciting. this green one was. It's what matcha. It? I have one with rose petals. Even spicy chocolate. Spicy. I can't wait to try that. I wonder what that tastes yeah. like. Tell me, has business been booming since yes. June? Since mm. since the news was reported, 非常多人開始注意到立陶宛這個國家,所以我們在訂單上面的成長是非常顯著的。That's great. Great for you, huh? <laughs> great for Thanks Lithuania. a lot. And we're really grateful for Lithuania. Are there were there any notable customers? 有些客人他會在訂單上面特別註明說他要感謝立陶宛捐贈疫苗,然後甚至有客人特別跑來門市說他要買2萬塊的巧克力,因為立陶宛在第一次的捐贈疫苗數量是2萬。that's really special. Um, well, tell me why you decided to uh, sell Lithuania chocolate. 我們在四年前因為有機會品嚐到路特的這個巧克力,羅蘭達斯就他們現在的執行長,帶著這個巧克力,我們在台灣碰面了,然後他請我吃這個巧克力,意思說我發現非常好吃。So what's special about Lithuanian chocolate。風味,因為它在立陶宛有108年的歷史了,它的這個風味上面超過300種以上,所以我們現在到台灣的這四年期進來超過50種口味,所以酸甜苦辣,黑巧克力,白巧克力,牛奶巧克力它都有
That's just, mm. really exciting. Can yes. we try some? Yes, of course. <laughs> We're gonna try the sour strawberry with white chocolate. There's a whole mm. strawberry in here. Wow, you can see the whole thing. Mm. The strawberry taste is really strong. It's really nice. And I love the white chocolate too. I think it goes really well together. And the balance. Mm -hmm. mm. Coffee? Oh, I love coffee. Coffee and chocolate is perfect. Really like the coffee flavor kind of mm. oozes out. It's really good. Have you ever had chocolate flavored coffee? Is that a thing? <laughs> I think I have. Mocha. Oh yeah, that's true. Now for the very special spicy flavor. See the spicy chips on it? Mm. I like that. It's subtle. Yeah, it's not as strong as I thought. I thought it was going to really burst in your mouth or something. I really love spicy things, um, and I feel like this is the perfect mix of spicy and chocolate. It's starting uh, to spread slowly as we Yeah, it's not like immediate. <laughs> not, not right away, and then starts to spread. This is great. This is fun. Yeah, I could do this all day. <laughs> Taiwan's largest opposition party, the KMT, just elected former New Taipei City Mayor Eric Zhu as its chairman. Now, what does Zhu's election mean for the KMT? Well, Stash Butler spoke with political scientist Song Wen-di to find out more. What, does, what values does Eric Zhu represent and what does his victory tell us about the KMT and its membership? I think Eric Zhu probably just in brief represents stability and continuity. Uh, stability as in KMT's party unity. Um, for a long time, it's been seen as the establishment candidate or almost a candidate of inevitability almost and uh, he's been considered the heir apparent uh, to the last KMT president, President Ma, for more or less a decade already and if you look at um, those people who stand behind him or around him during election rallies you, see, you can see that he has very bifactional, almost omnifactional support uh, more than any other candidate in the race this time. Uh, so that's the unity part, and I think in terms of policy stance, again, he represents some, probably the closest thing to President Ma Ying-jeou's uh, stance on Taiwan's position in U.S.-China uh, relationships. The slogan people often refer to is Lu, or basically staying on the good side of both U.S. and China. And that's been a position for President Ma and also for Mr. Chu as well. I mean, you mentioned the issue of China. I mean, very highly significantly, uh, Eric Zhu exchanged letters with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, with Xi congratulating him on his, uh, his victory. Uh, I mean, what does this mean for Eric Zhu's approach to ties with China? And, and how do you expect uh, the party's approach to China-Taiwan ties to change uh, under his leadership? Given that President Tsai Ing-wen, the current um, DPP president, represents a more U.S.-heavy approach. So Eric Chu represent a revision from that, uh, moving closer to the center, if not the center and slightly China-friendly side in that sort of U.S.-China spectrum. Uh, he also represents a slight uh, revision to the Chinese side of the spectrum, even compared with the current chairman, um, Johnny Chang, uh, Jiang Qichen, for example. So the KMT has been out of power now for, for five years, at least at the presidential level and, and legislative level. Um, what are its strengths right now electorally and, and what are its weaknesses? 
I think KMT's main strength lies in its ability to secure greater buy-in from Beijing. Given that KMT does have the word Chinese in its name, for one thing, and that the KMT uh, almost universally within the party endorses the 1992 consensus, which represent a however loose embrace of the one China idea in some shape or form. So as a result, um, KMT can come up with crush their policy that may seem uh, in the policy substance level not too different from the DPP, um, but KMT will get much greater benefit of the doubt from the Beijing side, which means that um, in terms of cross relations and KMT government often will be in a better position uh, to kickstart a virtuous cycle in a sense with Beijing. In terms of weakness, the weakness is clearly that given that US and rivalry is heating up, um, there's much stronger pressure to choose size, so to speak. And so when KMT does secure stronger benefit of the doubt from Beijing, that can also mean that it has a little bit more work to do in terms of securing comparable level of uh, trust from Washington. And I think that's something they're working on, and that's something that Eric Chu, with his US PhD, his US experience, uh, try to sell to not just the KMT primary voters, but to the Taiwanese electorate uh, as well. Looking forward to the the election in 2024, what will Du and the KMT have to do to win over Taiwanese voters? Um, I think the main thing is that they need to find a way to convince the Taiwanese voters that um, that traditional approach of or being friendly to both US and China. They need to convince the voters that that approach is still viable in the era of escalating US-China rivalry. Uh, because that approach worked pretty well from about 2008 to 2016, give or take, under the previous KMT president, President Ma Ying-jeou. And that had one underlying uh, condition, and that is, or that was, uh, the US engagement of China. When U.S. stop engaging, uh, start using engagement as a primary uh, position towards China, it creates problem then for Taiwan's engagement-oriented approach towards China as well. Uh, at what point will engagement of China be seen as accommodationism or as some kind of opportunistic bandwagoning, and to what extent will it raise will it raise um, concerns or a need for reassurance uh, from Washington? Uh, I think that's uh, that's a concern that um, KMT will need to figure out and need to convince the, both Washington and especially the Taiwanese voters of uh, going forward as they face 2022 and 2024 as well. Next up, Leslie explains why Taiwanese politics is giving people cause for celebration in Hashtag Taiwan. Throughout the course of this segment, Taiwan has been called many things. A New York Times editorial called it the most important place in the world, while The Economist once called it the most dangerous place on Earth. Now, are we dangerous because we're so important, or are we so important because we're dangerous? Think about that one and get back to me. But now, we're going to add another name for Taiwan to the list. A bright spot. A bright spot of what, you ask? 
Well, according to CNN's Fareed Zakaria, Taiwan shines because of its democracy. Last Saturday, Zakaria delivered a five-minute piece about how the world is going through a democratic recession. He says that there's a worrying trend in recent years where countries are abandoning democracy and embracing authoritarianism. Zakaria points out that COVID has contributed to this decline because some world leaders are using coronavirus restrictions as a cover to brutally take down their opponents. He says this is happening in places like Hungary, Venezuela, and Uganda. However, amid all of this chaos, Zakaria says that there's one place that's becoming increasingly democratic. Do you want to take a crack at what place he's talking about? If your answer wasn't Taiwan, then... Dude, what are you doing watching this show? Now, I don't know what show you think you were watching, but this segment is called Hashtag Taiwan. Taiwan ranks 11th in the Economist Intelligence Unit's 2020 Democracy Index, which makes it the highest ranked place in Asia. Taiwan jumped 20 spots since 2019, which is more than any other government in the entire world. Zakaria praised Taiwan for its high voter turnouts, its digital democracy initiatives, which encourage public participation in policy creation, and its internet freedom. Zakaria points out that Taiwan's internet is freer than that of Germany and the United States. Don't believe me? Well, Zakaria tweeted out the segment himself, saying, Democracy is waning worldwide, and COVID-19 hasn't helped. Amid this backsliding, Taiwan has been a rare bright spot. Many people, whether Taiwanese or simply having lived in Taiwan long term, Thank Zakaria for bringing attention to Taiwan's democratic achievements. One person whose presence doesn't surprise me is Taiwanese lawmaker Wang Dingyu, who says, Thank you, Fareed, for highlighting Taiwan's democratic achievements. I mean, that guy is always on Twitter. I just see him everywhere. Dave Troba tweets, I feel privileged to live here as a guest and to see how happy the people are about their hard-won rights and identity. To be sure, it is not perfect. No place is but I have lived in Sweden and Switzerland beyond my USA home, and Taiwan fits in that company. Then there's Alexander Perini who tweets, Thank you for highlighting Taiwan's successful democracy. As freedom is being challenged around the world, the country stands out as a beacon of hope. I also really like this tweet from John Hohohaha Chen who says, Thanks so much for your report. So proud of my country Taiwan and her people. Now that tweet might not seem too special, but that's how I feel about the report, and I really wanted to say John Ho Ho Ha Ha Chen. Among all of the praise for Taiwan though, there's one tweet that stands out which makes me kind of nervous. It's from Jay Osterman number 5522 who tweets, If Taiwan falls, it would mark the end of democracy in the world. I mean, do I agree? I honestly don't think so, because that just puts too much pressure on Taiwan to succeed. But we've got to keep our heads down and keep working to make Taiwan a more open and inclusive society. You better watch out, Norway, because we're gunning for number one next year. Before we leave you, here's a look at some of the other news stories that are on our radar. New Taipei City's Anzhugang Hospital has had its right to administer COVID vaccines suspended for a week. That's after the hospital accidentally gave undiluted vaccines to 25 people, giving them a vaccine dose over five times the normal concentration. Receiving such a potent dose could cause problems like myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart. Fortunately, all 25 affected people appear to be in good health so far. The Air Force has begun rehearsals for its annual National Day flyover of Taipei, which takes place every October 10th. Though only half of the 47 planes set to take part in the flyover are involved in the rehearsals, Taipei residents are still able to enjoy a spectacular display overhead. 
students across Taiwan have taken part in special rituals at Confucius temples to mark the sage's birthday, a day that coincides with Taiwan's Teacher's Day. Though some events have been scaled back to prevent the spread of COVID, one essential activity, the distribution of wisdom cakes to students, went ahead as ever. Taiwanese artist Yan Yu Ying may be 83 years old, but she's still determined to keep the traditional weaving of her indigenous Kavalan people alive. Traditional Kavalan cloth is painstakingly woven from dyed banana fibers, and Yen has become an authority on how this colorful cloth is made. The culture ministry recently recognized Yen for her work in passing this art form on to younger generations of Kavalan people. And welcome back to the studio, guys. Well, this week's final question of the week is going to be, you know, Fareed uh, Zakaria called Taiwan a bright spot of democracy, but... I want to ask you guys, what do you think Taiwan would be a bright spot for, if not democracy? Stash, let's start with you. Well, I think it's, you know, obviously a bright spot in democracy, in the world of democracy. It's also a bright spot in the world of dumplings. <laughs> uh, I, you know, honestly, I was shocked by uh, the, the, how cheap uh, dumplings are here and how wide the selection and how tasty. Uh, something I'm not going to get used to, I think, uh, when I go back to the UK. What's your favorite uh, dumpling? Oh, that's a hard question. There you go, man. I'm actually a big fan of the uh, Omni pork, like vegan uh, pork dumplings they have at Bafang. That's gotcha. a kind of go-to. Yeah. yeah, I saw those too. Yeah. Uh, Natalie, what about you? Okay, I would say kindness because I know so many people who have lost their wallet and had it returned to them with all the money back. Did I mean, you hear that's about very common the, um, in Taiwan. the old man who lost his lottery ticket and then the police tracked him down? And he won. And he won, he won one million new Taiwan dollars. Wow! So what happened was a lottery vendor. He was looking through like the bin of all the unused yeah. uh, lottery tickets that he assumed didn't win. Found one for one million new Taiwan dollars. Instead of keeping it for himself, he alerted the police. That's, That's amazing. And when the man who actually yes. won the money was approached by the police, he thought he was getting scammed. It's <laughs> <laughs> too good to be true. So that's uh, that's a really good one. Kindness. For me, it's uh, I'm glad we didn't overlap because Taiwan is known for so many things. But I think Taiwan is a bright spot for memories. Aww, um, all of my friends sweet. come to Taiwan. They're always just thinking about Taiwan, thinking about when they can come next. Mm. They think about the great times that they have. So, and I think I have some great memories here in Taiwan. I think I've forgotten more about having fun in Taiwan than most people ever have you know <laughs> yeah they have fun they have fun and yeah. i've had great times in taiwan anyway that just about does it for this this week's show uh actually natalie there's one no nope, there's something you, huh? i want to create another good memory for you oh, more memories. i actually want to say thank you to you guys for oh. being great co-hosts and you guys get to pick the chocolate oh of your choice it's, lithuanian it's chocolate lithuanian. Look, there's spicy chocolate my favorite Ooh. there's Ooh. cranberry there's the blueberry with strawberry i also have quite a few here like <laughs> Cherry. Oh. You can pick one, okay? A, okay. Strawberry. Oh I'm oh, giving them so away to you. And blueberries. Oh, my God. So. Which uh, one do you like? You know, I think Leslie wants that spicy one. You, spicy? Do you want the spicy? I mean, I'll no, have the spicy. You, you can have the spicy you guys one. Share? I'll have the spicy. My eyes right. look like a white chocolate with the blue. White chocolate. Oh, and the strawberries. My two favorite berries. And so my friends are getting these as well. This so is so excellent. These oh, are really so delicious. And we really uh, thank Lithuania for supporting Taiwan in so many ways. And we thank you, Natalie, for yeah. your chocolate. Oh, thank sure. you for the kind memory. Thank you for being a great co-host. <laughs> and uh, thank you for watching. Um, thanks for tuning in. And uh, my name is Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Stash Butler. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Facebook and uh, YouTube. 
And do leave us a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to tweet at us. Our handle is Taiwan Insider. And don't forget that we don't have a Thursday show next week, but we mm -hmm. are giving you live coverage of Taiwan's National Day. So tune into that, and we'll be coming to you live. Until then, guys, see you around. Bye. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Taiwan has one of the world's largest distant water fishing fleets, with tens of thousands of people working on these boats to catch valuable seafood. But Taiwan caught fish was put on the U.S. Department of Labor's dirty list due to concern over labor abuses among its migrant fishermen. Now, the American Institute in Taiwan is working with Taiwan on improving working conditions. For migrant fishermen, and here to talk with us about this today is AIT political officer Jason Huang. Thank you for joining me, Jason. Thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk with you about this important issue today. So, can you tell us why Taiwan caught fish was put on this uh, dirty list in September 2020? Sure, my pleasure. I think it's important to first note that the U.S. is increasingly focused on a global level at preventing forced labor. From reaching U.S. markets and from penetrating U.S. supply chains from everywhere around the world, and you can see that in efforts that extend across U.S. government agencies, including the U.S. Department of Labor, as you mentioned, but also efforts by the U.S. Department of Commerce and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that are together using a set of tools to help make sure that U.S. companies, including producers and buyers, and U.S. customers. And consumers are able to be aware uh, whether or not human rights are appropriately being respected and honored in making their own purchasing and business decisions. Um, and I think this is actually a global trend. Um, you may have noticed that on June 13th this year, the G7, the Group of Seven Nations, led by the United States, uh, made a public pledge to eliminate forced labor in international supply chains for, across every product. So I want to emphasize that this is not a issue that is limited to fish or limited to Taiwan, but part of a global effort to combat forced labor from international supply chains. Um, I also want to note here that the U.S. focused on forced labor and fishing is beyond the scope of just Taiwan. You did mention that Taiwan has one of the largest distant water fishing fleets in the world, and that is certainly true, and therefore deserving of greater scrutiny. Um, but the industry as a whole is, without question, having a, a broader problem with forced labor. Uh, just June of this year, you will see that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection also issued an unprecedented withhold release order that actually barred an entire fishing fleet of more than 30 ships uh, operated by the Dalian Ocean Fishing Company of the People's Republic of China from exporting any products to the United States. And you also may, may have noticed in the same month, the U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, um, also made a formal proposal that the World Trade Organization institute a global ban specifically on trading in fishing goods and fish products that are produced with forced labor. 
So I, I want to just emphasize that U.S. inclusion of fish from Taiwan in the, in the U.S. Department of Labor's biannual list of goods produced with child or forced labor is part of this global context. You know, I, I think ultimately there are challenges that this industry faces that are structural in nature and that are also rooted in the complexity of the international fishing industry. And so it really does require partnership and international cooperation in order to address. Well, I mean, I do know that because I have covered human trafficking in Taiwan, that Taiwan is one of the few countries in Asia, actually, I think only two, who have a tier one status in the U.S. State Department's trafficking in persons report, meaning they, you know, meet the minimum requirements of fighting human trafficking, and I know that we've been trying to protect the rights of migrant workers uh, within Taiwan, but it seems like fishermen, because they are out in the deep waters where people cannot be seen and monitored and, and contacted, um, are especially vulnerable. Can you tell us about some of the common abuses that uh, people are concerned about and that happen out in the deep sea? Yeah, no problem. Um, I think as we have reported before in the U.S. Department of Labor's report and the U.S. Department of State's Trafficking in Persons report, our research has found that uh, some, some migrant fishermen on board Taiwan-flagged vessels in the distant waters fishing fleet are subjected to, uh, to long working hours, poor living and working conditions, uh, a lack of appropriate safety and occupational health and safety measures, um, as well as in some cases facing exploitation from labor brokers or others that cause them to either not be properly compensated, uh, not be paid the wages that they were promised in the contracts that they signed, um, or face excessive uh, deposits or other withholdings that could amount to debt bondage. So these are the kinds of conditions that, that we are quite concerned about. I also want to emphasize that uh, Taiwan, like the U.S., has, as you mentioned, been ranked for a 12th consecutive year as Tier 1 by the U.S. Department uh, of State's Trafficking in Persons report. Uh, that doesn't mean, as you said, that there aren't problems. Um, there are serious problems in, in Taiwan's distant waters fishing fleet and uh, in, in dealing with migrant laborers uh, around, the, uh, around the board. Uh, in the United States, we also have similar problems. We have problems dealing with a variety of trafficking in persons issues. But unfortunately, our fishing fleet also faces some similar challenges. Uh, the U.S. federal government issued a report on the challenges faced on U.S. flagged long-distance fishing vessels and found serious gaps in U.S. legal and regulatory authorities that are able to help prevent, uh, detect, and prosecute forced labor in our own fishing industry. So I want to emphasize that the Tier 1 ranking does not mean the absence of a problem. Uh, it does mean that the government is meeting the minimum standards as outlined in U.S. law under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Uh, but uh, like the U.S., Taiwan has some serious problems that it needs to address, and we are working in partnership with the authorities here to, to deal with those issues. Well, it's good to know that the U.S. is working with the government. I know that a few years ago there was a high-profile case of an Indonesian fisherman named uh, Supriyanta, who I think only spent four months at sea, and there was video footage of him you know, being tortured and, and then dying, and then not um, people just said that he was sick. So... How are we trying to prevent, you know, these kind of uh, abuse, physical and abuse that sometimes even leads to death of these fishermen? It's, it's really sad and tragic to see cases like that. 
Yeah, certainly we do hear reports of specific abuses and they are uh, extremely concerning. But I think we need to address some of the systemic issues in oversight of the industry. I think at its very root, there is a tremendous uh, disparity in information and an imbalance in power between these uh, migrant workers uh, before they are even recruited or even step foot on a ship and the other people who they deal with, whether it is labor brokers or fishing companies or their fish captains. Um, so we need to look at using uh, appropriate regulatory mechanisms, legal protections, and also practical mechanisms for oversight to ensure that we try to empower them as much as possible so that they know what they're committing to and that the uh, employers or brokers are held accountable for the standards in the contracts that they sign and according to the laws and regulations uh, of, of Taiwan. So have there been any specific changes in the past few years to help protect these fishermen? Yes, just a few years ago, we saw Taiwan Institute a very first set of uh, minimum standards for working conditions aboard Taiwan-flagged distant waters fishing fleets that instituted for the first time some minimum wages, some basic uh, labor protections, etc. Uh, so that is certainly a step in the right direction. We also have seen over the last few years a tremendous response from Taiwan civil society, uh, particularly in the wake of the 2019 collapse of that bridge at Nanfang Ao that led to the deaths of several migrant fishermen um, on board their, their vessels. There has been tremendous attention from civil society organizations, from the press, and from the Taiwan public, uh, and a renewed commitment to addressing the kind of vulnerabilities of these, of these migrant laborers uh, to abuse and or just poor living conditions. Um, I think the more that people know, the more that they're able to demand a, a fair and equitable treatment for, for these workers. So what can civil society do to help these migrant workers? I think civil society in Taiwan has been particularly active in campaigning for the government to strengthen its regulations, uh, both in theory and in oversight in terms of their actual practice of supervision. Uh, I know that civil society organizations have been active in communicating with migrant fishermen, educating them about their rights, encouraging them to share complaints or uh, allegations of abuse or others so that they can be properly investigated. Um, and civil society organizations have been working with their international counterparts, including from the United States, to draw attention to these issues to ensure that it doesn't uh, escape public scrutiny, but instead that all of us together uh, live up to the values that we share as democratic societies and try to ensure that the human rights of those people who are most vulnerable and among us um, are upheld. So what can a migrant fisherman do if he's out in the deep waters and he's being abused? What is, who is he to turn to? This is one of the structural vulnerabilities that I talked about. The reality is that some of these fishing ships may leave port and not return for two years. Whether it is the case of a captain who may have a health condition or a single worker who may want to go home or a case of more serious abuse or physical violence, uh, the reality is that these ships operate at a long distance from any authority for a great length of time. And so we certainly understand that sometimes it is hard for these, for these individuals, for these victims, uh, to find a way to appropriately and in a timely manner um, make their grievances known. Uh, so I think we are looking to 
the authorities here in Taiwan at a minimum to ensure that when these ships do return to port and these individuals have the opportunity to, to, uh, to walk away from the situation, that any allegations that they may make are, are, are seriously considered and that they are appropriately screened for indicators of, of forced labor or other types of human trafficking. So there are channels now for them to do that when they dock in different ports around the world? Certainly in every port there are different fishermen service organizations that they can reach out to. Uh, here in Taiwan there are a variety of civil society groups that operate uh, shelters or service centers uh, catering to foreign fishermen where they can use the internet for free, they can discuss with some uh, some social workers who speak their native language, uh, the challenges that they're facing, and help them find an appropriate mechanism for redress, whether that's through the legal system, whether it's through some type of mediation, um, or filing some kind of a complaint. So how would you say the government in Taiwan is dealing with this? Are they taking it as seriously as they have been, you know, other human trafficking issues? I know that uh, regarding uh, sex trafficking and other issues, they've been doing different types of training for uh, police officers or judges or, you know, people that can help um, these victims. What about, in the case of migrant fishermen, this is a very difficult area and, and realm of people to, to aid, and how do you think the government is dealing with it right now? Yeah, I can say that I think uh, with pressure from the international community, with attention from the Taiwan public, and with the determined advocacy of Taiwan civil society groups, the government appears to be making a sincere effort to change the situation. Uh, I am aware that the Fisheries Agency is working with other Taiwan government uh, organizations to put together a draft action plan specifically addressing the abuse of human rights uh, in, uh, for migrant fishermen in Taiwan. So uh, I think we all look forward to seeing that plan when it is ready um, and ensuring that it proposes concrete solutions that are adequately resourced to help make real improvements in, in the lives of these migrant fishermen and ensure that their rights are being upheld. Well, that's good to know. And I, and I appreciate the United States working to help these migrant workers. Jason, thank you so much for uh, letting us know how the U.S. is working with Taiwan on this very important issue. I've been speaking with AIT political officer Jason Huang about the issue of migrant fishermen and their rights here in Taiwan. Thank you, Natalie. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. For all your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with the download.
Welcome to the download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Dash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I speak to Dr. Alex Tichi from Academia Sinica. He tells me why he came to work in Taiwan and how his field of astronomy is answering fundamental questions about life on planet Earth. All that coming up on the download. So my name is Alex Tichi. I'm a, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Academia Sinica Institute for uh, Astronomy and Astrophysics. And um, so I'm an astronomer. And what I do is I uh, work on finding these things called exomoons. These are moons of exoplanets, exoplanets being planets orbiting stars um, outside of our solar system. So at this point, we have discovered uh, several thousand of these uh, exoplanets. and. Um, just like uh, the planets in our solar system, most of them have moons, um, in some cases quite a few moons, uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. Um, and so it stands to reason that these planets uh, orbiting other stars, they may also have uh, moons as well. Uh, and so that's what I do. I, I look for those moons and they're spectacularly difficult to find, um, but I think they're um, quite interesting targets. And so, and so that's, what I, that's what I work on. Um, why did I come to Taiwan? Uh, I finished my PhD at Columbia University uh, just last year, 2020. And uh, uh, you know, then when you finish a PhD in, in astronomy anyway, you'll be looking for uh, postdocs typically. You don't usually go directly to a faculty job necessarily. People will get a research position for several years. Uh, and so you apply all over the place. Uh, I applied, you know, I don't know, 20 some jobs or something all over the world. Um, but this one in Taiwan, I was particularly keen on. Um, I had a lot of Taiwanese friends actually. And, uh, you know, the more I learned about Taiwan, it seemed like a place that I could really dig uh, living. And so I applied for this job and I was thrilled to get it. And, um, and so they brought me over here in February 2020 to kind of like entice me to take the job. And I was just sold immediately. I mean, I felt a little embarrassed that I <laughs> that they had flown me over here to try to like convince me. And I was like, yeah, I'm convinced. Like <laughs> <laughs> you didn't need to try. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, thanks for the trip, you know. <laughs> uh, but it was yeah. But it, all the same, it was very uh, nice to be able to see Taipei and, and kind of know what I was getting into. Uh, you know, I wasn't taking a job totally sight unseen. Um, so they came, I flew me over here right before the pandemic started to, in earnest uh, in, you know, hit the United States in March and everything locked down. And then um, I, I knew that I had this job lined up. So I was just sort of counting the months that I could get over here. And I finally got over here in September of 2020. So I've been here a, a, about a year now. So, I mean, it's interesting. So you were already drawn to Taiwan before you came. I mean, what was what, what kind of awareness did you have of it? I mean, as a, as a place to live and as a kind of research environment? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I had a lot of, I lived in New York City. So it's a very diverse um, uh, city, of course. And I had a lot of East Asian friends, really from all over the place. Um, uh, but especially, um, you know, Chinese American. And uh, but I, like I say, also I had a lot of uh, Taiwanese and Taiwanese American friends. Um, and uh, I, you know, I think I just sort of always felt like maybe I would be quite comfortable living in, in East Asia. I'd never really been uh, over here at all until 2018, I guess. Uh, it was just a quick visit to Thailand and, and Japan. And I just kind of got a sense that, you know, this is, this is kind of a place that I could dig more broadly, East Asia. I mean, 
Um, and then Taiwan in particular, the more I learned about it, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a fascinating history and it's really got everything that I really want in a place to live. I like living in a city, so Taipei is great like that. I mean, uh, living in Taipei is in many ways very similar to living in uh, New York City, if not better, <laughs> in, in my view. I, you know, I hate cold weather. I lived in New York City for 17 years, and, but it's just frigid and I just, you know, I hate it. Um, so to, uh, I'd much rather be dripping sweat, which of course I have been uh, in the Taiwanese summer, uh, but that's preferable to, to, to freezing. Um, the, the mountains are beautiful. The, the flora and fauna, um, you're close to the mountains, you're close to the, the, the beach. The food is fantastic. The people are just uh, lovely. Um, and um, yeah, everything is just, it's, uh, it's really great here. And, and as far as the research opportunities, um, you know, my particular field is so small, exomoons, I mean, uh, there's so few of us working in it that in contrast to other astronomers where they will say, okay, well, I work on this and therefore I need to go to that institution because uh, that's also where they focus on this sort of thing. There's so few of us doing this particular kind of work that I felt like, well, I can't really shop around for people that will be collaborators. I'm going to be kind of on my own. Uh, wherever I'm going to be and I don't really require in the course of my work um, you know a lot of like uh, telescope resources which is also important for other astronomers. Uh, Asia A where I work uh, certainly has uh, access to premier telescopes but it just the, the nature of my work doesn't really require it. I use mostly space telescopes. Um, so I could basically work anywhere that would be willing to pay me <laughs> and uh, and you know I was just sort of uh, you know I felt very fortunate that the uh, Asia A took a chance to, to endorse this work and, and to, to give me a job for a few years. So is it fair to say, I mean, you know, it's always incredible, I guess, to, to any kind of lay person sort of listening to an astronomer. You're like, oh, you know, I don't really use a big, tele I, just, I just use the big space telescopes, you know, it's pretty, <laughs> you know, run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, but yeah. you, you, you kind of characterize your field as kind of quite niche, even within kind of well, astronomy, I guess. That's right. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's under the broader umbrella of uh, exoplanets, and exoplanets as a, a subfield of astronomy has exploded in the last twenty or thirty years. So it's huge, and it gets a lot of money. Um, but within exoplanets, there's very few people that are doing um, this work, looking for the moons, uh, because they are very challenging to find. And um, you know, I think a lot of people have sort of said, "Well, we we, we can't do it yet," you know, but. Um, you know, in astronomy or any field, you know, you're always going to be kind of pushing the envelope and seeing kind of what's what's next. And uh, and so I, you know, I just kind of uh, I just kind of dropped into this. Um, but it's nice to it's kind of nice to be in a small field because you you can kind of make a name. There's still sort of uh, low hanging fruit. It's not that it's easy, but there's still sort of fundamental work uh, to be done. And um, and then uh, you know you can make a little bit of a splash doing this kind of work actually. So you say there's been a kind of explosion in, in this, in the, particularly in the field of exoplanets and in that whole uh, area. Why is that? What's, what's, what's behind that? Well, it's just in the last few decades that we've had the technology really to do it. And, um, and so when we discovered the first planets in the, uh, really the first one is in 1992, and then uh, there was another major discovery in 1995. Um, and then the Kepler telescope uh, was under development, and that was really a, kind of a game changer for uh, detecting planets. There's a variety of different ways that we would do it. 
uh, to look for these planets, but uh, the Kepler telescope in particular stared at one patch of sky and just well, just stared there for four and a half years, monitoring the brightness of something like 200,000 stars. And um, we get these things called light curves where you're monitoring the brightness of this star, and when a planet passes in front of the star from our point of view, you see this little dip. And, you know, because the planet goes around again and again, this is a very sort of periodic dip. And therefore, you, you know, you can uh, see these planets uh, comparatively easily. I mean, it's not easy work, of course, but um, compared to some other ways that you might try to do it, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really sort of a game changer because now, like I say, we have thousands of these planets. And um, they've told us a great deal about, of course, there's other systems, but also kind of where we fit in. I mean, our solar system. In what ways are we ordinary and in what ways are we extraordinary? Um, until we discovered these exoplanets, we had a very sort of tidy picture about how stars form and how planets form. And then um, all of a sudden we started seeing these things that are, you know, quite bizarre uh, based on that picture. And so we've had to kind of go through a rethink about uh, uh, all of these sort of processes. And, uh, and then, like I say, you know, where do we fit in? I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an open question that people are interested in for one thing, about the origin for life. You know, obviously we see life here, but how common is life uh, out there in the galaxy? Um, we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, but I think either answer to that, whether it's common or whether it's uncommon, um, both of those answers are equally intriguing and equally important. That was Dr. Alex Tichy telling me how the search for exoplanets and exomoons is helping scientists reflect on our place in the universe. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, Dr. Tichy tells me how he turned from actor to astronomer in the space of a few years. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on The Download. Taiwan's largest opposition party, the KMT, just elected former New Taipei City Mayor Eric Zhu as its chairman. Now, what does Zhu's election mean for the KMT? Well, Stash Butler spoke with political scientist Song Wen-di to find out more. What, does, what values does Eric Zhu represent and what does his victory tell us about the KMT and its membership? I think Eric Zhu probably just in brief represents stability and continuity. Uh, stability as in KMT's party unity. Um, for a long time, it's been seen as the establishment candidate, or almost a candidate of inevitability, almost. And uh, he's been considered the heir apparent uh, to the last KMT president, President Ma, for more or less a decade already. And if you look at um, those people who stand behind him, around him during election rallies, you, see, you can see that he has very bifactional, almost omnifactional support, uh, more than any other candidate in the race this time. Uh, so that's the unity part. And I think in terms of policy stance, again, he represents some, probably the closest thing to President Ma Ying-jeou's uh, stance on Taiwan's position in U.S.-China uh, relationships. The slogan people often refer to is Lu, or basically staying on the good side of both U.S and China. 
And that's been a position for President Ma and also for Mr. Chu as well. I mean, you mentioned the issue of China. I mean, very highly significantly, uh, Eric Zhu exchanged letters with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, uh, with Xi congratulating him on his, uh, his victory. Uh, I mean, what does this mean for Eric Zhu's approach to ties with China? And, and how do you expect uh, the party's approach to China-Taiwan ties to change uh, under his leadership? Given that President Tsai Ing-wen, the current um, DPP president, represents a more U.S.-heavy approach, so Eric Chu represents a revision from that and moving closer to the center, if not the center, and slightly China-friendly side in that sort of U.S.-China spectrum. Uh, he also represents a slight uh, revision to the Chinese side of the spectrum, even compared with the current chairman, um, Johnny Chang, uh, Jiang Qichen, for example. is a place full of voices, viewpoints, and stories. Hear them all here on Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan, straight from the source. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.